Good morning, Harvest. My name is Graham Spell. I serve as one of the pastors here at Harvest Church, and I understand that it's the 4th of July weekend. I know we probably have a lot of visitors here, so if you are a visitor, welcome on behalf of our pastors and elders. I hope you have a great time celebrating the birth of our country with your family and friends. Today, we're going to continue on in our study through the armor of God. Three weeks ago, Bill Garner, executive pastor, uh, came up and shared with us that we are in a spiritual battle. We're in spiritual warfare, not against flesh and blood, but against Satan and his army. Two weeks ago, Jason Ellis uh, came up here and shared with us the first piece of armor that God has given us to wage war in this spiritual battle, which is the belt of truth. Last week, Ben Fasano came up and shared about the breastplate of righteousness. And I just want to pause and encourage you to go back and listen to those sermons. They, all three of them do a phenomenal job uh, kicking this um, sermon series off for us. Today, we're going to talk about our gospel boots. And so if you are willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's word. We'll be in Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10. Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10. This is the word of the Lord. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil, spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. Stand therefore with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest and your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. This is the word of God for the people of God and the peoples of God said, praise be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. This is a uh, text of good news, a gospel of peace. Father, I pray that we squeeze everything out of it that we possibly can and that we leave with our hearts pricked with passion for you and excitement to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Uh, over the last eight years, I, I worked for a ministry and, and part of my job was to spend about a month and a half in Colorado every summer. One of those weeks in Colorado, I would take uh, high school boys backpacking in the wilderness of the San Juan Mountains. Now, before I would take these guys backpacking, I would have to prepare some city boys from Dallas on how to survive in the wilderness for a week. So I would invite them over to my house with their parents and we would go through the packing list item by item. We would get to the, one of the arguably the most important item on that list. It was your boots. And I would tell the boys and their parents, you can go cheap on all of these items on this list, but whatever you do, do not go cheap on your boots. Well, this particular year, I uh, took a young man by the name of Gene. Gene shows up. Gene was at the packing meeting. He heard my warning. He, he heard my request to buy nice boots. And we're packing up our backpacks. We're at base camp. We're about to hit the trailhead. And Gene pulls out his boots. And I looked at him. And I know boots well enough to know good boots when I see them. And I said, oh, no. I said, Gene, where'd you get your boots? He goes, oh, I got them on sale at Walmart. And I said, okay. And in my head, I'm going, this is not going to go well. 
Sure enough, we go hiking. We're on this trail. It's a long trail. We're hiking to the top of the Rio Grande Pyramid. It's a 13,820-foot, one-foot peak. And it's pretty technical. It's a lot of climbing. It's a lot of dodging loose rocks. And you're trying to, you get to the top of this rock. Well, before we even get to the top of this mountain, Gene's right boot is just falling apart. The sole is falling off of it. And luckily, one of our guides brought a little bit of duct tape, and he duct taped that sole to the bottom of his, of his shoe. Duct tape can fix a lot of things, but it can't fix a, but, a boot on the top of a 13,000-foot mountain. Because if you know anything about getting to the top of the mountain, the hardest part is actually going down the mountain. So we get to the top of this mountain, Gene's right boot is just disintegrated, and it's time to go down. Well, it's not, it's not long down this mountain that Gene's left boot starts falling apart. And now we're resulting to tying it together with bandanas. Bandanas don't hold boots together long for 10 more miles in the wilderness of Colorado, I'll tell you that much. So we get to the point where we're going, all right, Gene, you're slowing us down. We got to pick up the pace. We're never going to make it out of here. We got to get off this mountain before the storms roll in. You got anything else? He goes, well, I have some Converse All-Stars. And so he pulls out his Converse All-Stars and these are his favorite pair of shoes. They are holy. I mean, they've got holes all in them. They're worn out. He's had them probably since sixth grade. He slaps those bad boys on and they last about a mile on the trail. And sure enough, those, boot, those shoes have fallen apart. So then we have to result to him wearing someone else's Chacos, sandals. And by the end of our trip, his feet are blistered. They are rubbed raw. They are torn up. And he is limping into base camp. I learned something that week. Boots are incredibly important when you're in the wilderness. If you want to go fast, if you want to go far, if you want to uh, be comfortable, you've got to have good boots. Paul understood that when he told us that we need to have our feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. What he had in mind was the sandals, the boots that Roman soldiers would wear. These had about a sole, a leather sole, about two centimeters thick. They had hobnails on the bottom of them. Think, you know, a little kid's soccer cleat so they could march, they could stand their ground. Uh, they would tie them up so they had ankle support. They could stuff wool in them to keep their feet warm when it was cold. But their boots were important. It didn't matter what else they had. If they couldn't march, if they couldn't take ground, if they couldn't defend their territory, they weren't gonna be good soldiers. And so what Paul is telling us today is we've got to, Put our gospel boots on. And so before we go any further, I want to pull out two words already. First one is the first word in verse 14, to stand. Paul is instructing us to stand firm in the gospel. This word has uh, two, I think, two uh, connotations. The first being a defensive one, the primary one being defensive, that we're able to hold our ground against Satan and his temptations and his accusations. We don't give up. We stand firm. We're stable. We're balanced. We're mobile. We've got good shoes on. We, we, we can fight against the enemy. The second one is an offensive uh, connotation, that we're able to take ground when we're able to. I think of it this way. If you're watching your favorite football team, and their opponent has pushed them up against their goal line. And they're on the two yard line. They're trying to stop them from making a, a touchdown. What do we want them to do? To have a goal line stand. While yes, we want them to stop the ball from moving forward and them scoring a touchdown, but we would also love for them to not give up ground. We love them for them to push the, their opponent back. Maybe even get a turnover. We want them to play a little bit of offense too. We want them to push back. Well, that's what Paul is, is talking about here with stand. The next one is readiness. Scholars and commentators are, are kind of confused on what Paul is calling us to be ready for. I think it's two things. 
I think one, it's ready, being ready for the attacks of, and, of Satan, of his accusations and his temptations and his deceptions, that we wanna be ready to go to war against those things, to march against them. The second one is that we wanna be ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. So in order to be ready to proclaim the gospel of peace, we first have to understand the gospel. When I was in seminary at Dallas Theological Seminary, Ronnie uh, mentioned this in his sermon a couple of weeks ago, that your first class, you learned the Luo paradigm. Luo, Lues, Lue, Luamen, Luete, Luusen. Well, our Greek professor on my first day said, hey, you need to have this memorized, that if I come to your house and I poke you at 3 a.m., you can say the Luo paradigm. You want to know this inside and out. Well, I think the same thing could be true of believers understanding the gospel. That if I came to your house and I poked you in the face at 3 a.m. and said, hey, what's the gospel? That you would be able to tell me. Can you do that? Someone were to wake you up tomorrow, if your husband or wife shakes you awake, says, honey, what's the gospel? Could you tell them? Well, luckily, Paul does not leave us hanging. And I know we're all familiar with John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. But what are the ingredients that make up the gospel? I want you to flip with me to 1 Corinthians 15, verse one. I want you to see this in your Bible. I want you to have a, a finger on it. This is 1 Corinthians 15, one. Paul shares, uh, reminds the Corinthians of the gospel. And he gives us three ingredients that make up the gospels. So 1 Corinthians 15, verse one. Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand. Okay, the Corinthians are in a culture not, not too far off from ours. And Paul has encouraged them. You've taken your stand on the gospel. You are firm on the gospel. You're not shaken by the wind and the waves. You're taking your stand on the gospel. Here it is. And by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Verse three, for I passed on to you as most important what I also received. Here's ingredient one, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. The first ingredient of the gospel is that Christ died for you and me, for our sins. The Bible says in Romans 3, 23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6, 23 says but the, uh, that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That because of our sin, that we deserve separation from God for all of eternity. Our world is corrupted by sin. I know it and you know it. Every single one of us, when we got to church today, locked our car. When we went to bed last night, we locked our doors. We watch the news and we hear about a war that's happening overseas that is, has turned everyone's life in Ukraine upside down. We've seen it in the past two years with a pandemic, with sickness spreading, death spreading. We know we live in a fallen, sinful, corrupted world. But God heard his people's groanings and he sent his only son. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus was fully God, fully man, perfect, without sin. The perfect substitutionary atonement for our sin on the cross. He died for our sins. The second ingredient, verse four, 
that he was buried. Jesus wasn't fake dead. Jesus was dead dead. When he hung on the cross, they stabbed him with a spear. They drained his body of blood and water. They prepared his body for uh, burial. They put him in a tomb. They rolled a rock over it. They sealed it. They guarded it. They wanted to make sure that nobody could fabricate a story that Jesus Christ had risen from the grave. And they did everything they could to stop that message from going forth. Jesus was dead. third ingredient, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12, then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Jesus didn't remain dead. He rose from the grave. He didn't just appear to his closest followers who could make up the story. He appeared to 500 people at one time. He appeared to hundreds of people. The people who saw him crucified and dead saw him resurrected three days later. Our faith is built on the resurrection. So the gospel is Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, perfect, without sin, dying for us on the cross, for our sins, buried and resurrected. Those are the three ingredients of the gospel. If you're sitting here and you don't uh, know Jesus, Romans 10, nine through 10 says this, how you become a Christian, how you put your faith, how you receive Christ, you put your trust in him. He says this, if you can, this is Romans 10, nine through 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart resulting in righteousness and one confesses with the mouth resulting in salvation. If you want to enter into a relationship with the Lord Jesus, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. But our relationship with Christ is not just a profession of faith. It's also a possession of faith. When we have our feet sandaled in the gospel of peace, it's not just something we talk about, it's something we walk out. The gospel is for the unbeliever and the believer. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, if you flip there, it's one of my favorite passages in all of scripture. And it's Paul talking about us walking out our salvation says this, verse eight, for you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. You are saved by grace through faith, not by your own works. You can't boast about it. A relationship with God is entered in by grace through faith. God is the one that has taken you from dead in your trespasses to alive in Christ. I haven't been able to shake Ephesians 2.10 from my brain for years. The reason being is that the other day I was reading in a, uh, a little book for our kids. Uh, it sounds like we're getting some much needed rain. Uh, I was reading a a book to our kids that takes a verse and then it adds like a little devotional for them. And it used this verse for we are his workmanship, but it applied it to Genesis one and two, to creation. 
Unfortunately, I actually think that's incorrect. Because what Paul is referring to here is God not creating a human, but God taking a sinner who is dead in their trespasses and making them alive in Christ. This is a work that you can't do. It's a work that only God can do for you, which is why it's his, you, we are his workmanship. Well, we are created when he takes us from death to life, that we become his workmanship, created for good works in Christ Jesus. We are to not only profess our faith, but possess it, to live it out, to walk it out. When we preach the gospel to ourselves every day, when we remind ourselves that it's by grace, through faith, not by works that we can't boast and that we are to walk this out as his workmanship, as his trophies of grace and our spheres of influence, we don't allow Satan to get a foothold in our lives. When we understand the gospel, we've sandaled our feet with the gospel of peace, we act from love, not for love. We realize that there's nothing we can do to earn God's love because he loves us unconditionally already. And out of that unconditional love, when Jesus died on the cross, Romans, uh, I think it's in Romans 5, uh, says, but while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, he, God showed his love, great love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us out of love. He wasn't a victim. He was a volunteer. And out of that love, we act. We don't act for it. We act from it. And we live out our new identity in Christ, our freedom in Christ, that we're no longer enslaved to sin, but we have our single mind set upon Christ, set upon the gospel. We have to understand the basics. When I was in college, I was an exercise and sports science major. And one of the electives uh, I chose to take was a golf and racquetball class. And I realized at this point, you were all very impressed with my college education. But this racquetball, it was more of a racquetball class than a golf class because the coach that taught it was a, to my knowledge, a 27-time national or international champion in racquetball as a coach or as a player. He was incredible. His name was Coach Lyles, and one of our last assignments was to play in a big class-wide tournament, and the winner got to play Coach Lyles. I made it to the final match. I uh, I had to play against a guy named Zach, and Zach beat me by two points, thankfully. Because Zach went on to play Coach Lyles and he got destroyed. And so I remember showing up, I sat there, Coach Lyles showed up, he had all the right gear. He had the wristbands, the headband, the glasses to protect his eyes, the glove, the nice racket, the shoes, he was ready. Zach showed up, pretty confident. Coach Lyles, you know, looks at him, says, are you ready? Yep, all right, so he serves. I kid you not, Coach Lyles did not move a foot the entire match. He served that ball, and from the first serve, Zach is just running circles around him. He is just lost, and Coach Lyles is smoking him. I think he beat him 21 to 2, and because uh, Coach Lyles knew the ins and outs of racquetball. He knew the gospel. So as Zach is serving those up, he's hitting them between his legs. He's getting forehands, backhands. He is smoking this guy. Well, when Satan, when, you're, when your feet are sandaled in the gospel— and Satan is lobbing his accusations at you, when he's lobbing his deceptions at you, when he's lobbing his temptations at you, you are able to serve him back to him without fear, without failure. When he's saying, there's no way God loves you. 
You say, God gave his only son for me. When he said, you can't be a child of God, you say, I'm adopted into his family. When you say there's no way, when, God, when Satan says there's no way God can use you, you say, I'm his workmanship, created for good works in Christ Jesus. You're able to return every volley he sends at you. When your feet are sandaled with the gospel of peace, you experience peace in four ways. The first, you experience peace with God. Romans 5, 1 through 2, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. When your feet are sandaled in the gospel, you have peace with God. Number two, you have the peace of God. Philippians 4, 6 through 7 says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, uh, by prayer and thanksgiving, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That when we have our sandals booted up in the gospel of peace, we have a peace that surpasses all understanding, no matter what situation we find our in, ourselves in. Whether that's in a cancer diagnosis, in a pandemic, with a global war happening around us, a job loss, whatever it is, we have a peace that surpasses all understanding because we know God, the creator of the universe, is in control. You know, there was no man who exemplified peace better than Jesus Christ. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He left perfection to enter imperfection. When Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, he didn't get frazzled. He sent every temptation right back at Satan with peace. When Jesus was on the boat with his disciples and they were scared and terrified out of their mind because the boat was being tossed by the waves and winds, they thought their lives were in danger. Jesus was asleep. And when he wakes up, he says, peace, be still. When Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane about to be betrayed by Judas with a kiss, and he says, Lord, your will be done, not my will. He is at peace with the plan of God. When Jesus is being beaten and mocked and scorned and spit upon and nailed to a cross, he could have stopped it at any moment, but he was at peace. Jesus shows us what peace, what the peace of God looks like. Third, we have peace with believers. Ephesians 2, 13 and on says this, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the, tore, tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two resulting in peace. He did this so he might reconcile both to God and one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. In verse 14, that dividing wall of hostility, what Paul is talking about is the wall that separated Gentiles from entering the inner courts of the temple for the Jews. 
That when Christ died on the cross, he created one new man, eliminating that dividing wall of hostility so that there should no longer be separation between Jews and Gentiles, but that they would be unified. Friends, Satan would love to do nothing more than to divide our church. He would love for us to get in disagreements and arguments over politics, over race, over socioeconomic status. And when we come to this table, we are reminding ourselves of the gospel, the shed blood, the broken body of Christ, but also that we are unified together in the gospel as a church. That the glue that holds us together, that sandals every single one of our feet is the gospel. And that's what we stack our hands on. Finally, number four, when your feet are sandaled with the gospel of peace, you are a herald of the gospel of peace and you take peace to the world. Isaiah 52, seven says this, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the herald who proclaims peace, who brings good news, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Isaiah 52, seven and Ephesians 6, 15 are the only two verses in the entire Bible that use feet, good news, and peace in the same sentence. You are called to be a herald of the good news of Jesus Christ, to proclaim peace to the nations. The idea here is that a, a herald would march far and wide and scream from the mountaintops that your God reigns peace on earth to all who trust in Christ. You know what a herald needed? Good shoes. So he could travel far and wide, up and down hills and valleys and mountaintops into cities. You were called to be a herald to the nations. You are called to take the good news. Is that your idea of evangelism? To just proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to anyone that will listen? Probably not, otherwise I think we'd do it more, myself included. Proclaim the good news, be a herald. Last thing I'll say on that, our enemies aren't people. It's not someone holding a pro-choice sign. It's not someone who votes for a different political party. It's not someone who lives in a different neighborhood than us. Our enemy is Satan and his army. We are called to love people and to share the good news and invite them to know Jesus Christ and receive the gospel of peace. And the world is craving it. This is a little bit of a stretch, but I'll, I'll tell you this story. The other day I was out and about with my oldest son, Owen. And if you've hung out with Owen much in childcare, you know that he's very exuberant. And we, he really wanted to fill up his water bottle. And uh, at this particular place, the water, bottle, the water fountain had one of those automatic uh, motion-sensored uh, water bottle fillers. And to an adult, it's technology. To a child, it's magic. And Owen was obsessed with this thing. And he's filling up his water bottle. He's pouring it out. He's filling it up. He's pouring it out. He's, he's just laughing. He thinks it's the coolest thing ever. And this guy's walking by. He looks like he's been through life. And he just stops and he watches Owen. And he looks at me. And he says, man, 
wouldn't you pay a lot of money to just be innocent again? And it pricked my heart. And I've been chewing on what he said because I thought that, I, man, I would love to be innocent, but I was really, I was like, man, do I really want to be a child again? But deep down, what my heart desires most is for there to be peace. A time when I don't have to worry about uh, needing a gun to go to Kroger to protect myself. A time when I don't have to lock my car. A time when I'm not uh, scared about a cancer diagnosis with my grandmother. A time when there's no more death, no more pain, no more tears, where all those things are wiped away and we're made full in Christ and complete. And we won't experience that this side of heaven, but we will experience it with our Lord Jesus Christ on the other side of heaven. And everybody outside of these walls is hungry for the peace of God, to have peace with God, to have the peace of God, to have peace with others. And it's our job as believers to take that peace to the world. So Harvest, I want to leave you with this. This is Romans 10, 13 to 15. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on him? They call on him they have not believed in. And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Harvest, be a herald. Take the good news to your neighborhood, to your family dinner table, to your job, to your gym. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you died for us, for our sins, that you were buried, that you were resurrected from the grave. Lord, that you came so we may have life and have it abundantly. Lord, may we see the accusations and the deception and the temptations of Satan. All he promises, the best he has for us is to steal and kill and destroy Lord, I pray that we as believers would latch on to your word, latch on to your gospel, that we may have life and have it abundantly. May we strap on our gospel boots and take it to the nations. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.